And I was going to go into applied math because that was something which actually I found quite interesting. And then one day I was reading like a Scientific American or something. And I heard about this laboratory at uh, Princeton University that did actually climate modeling. They were the first people to do climate modeling. This was back in the late 70s. And that sounded really cool to me because they had a model of the climate system. They could take the mountains off the earth and see what happens to the climate. And that sounded really, really cool. Almost gut-wrenchingly cool thing. And so I applied to the program and I got accepted and I never actually did any of that stuff. I never took mountains out of a climate model, but that's how I got involved in, in this area. So it was just serendipity. When I talk to students, they say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about what I should do. And I think most things are really interesting. And as long as you kind of think that it actually has some interest to you and something you want to do like, you know, 24 seven, then you should probably go to it and not really worry about where you end up, door one or door two. And I was lucky to find that. I can't imagine doing something that doesn't just grab me. When I get up in the morning, I just want to get to work and do my science. Like even today, I'm just so excited by what I do and the things that are still to be found. And so that's really what makes my job fascinating. Flights of fancy and a researcher's fascination. We interrupt our regularly scheduled programming, Women in Academia, to bring you the special edition of View to the U that features Professor Kent Moore, who, as of July 2018, is U of T Mississauga's Vice Principal Research. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. On today's show, Kent talks about his investigations in the dynamics of the climate system, as well as the meteorology of mountainous regions, which as you can tell from the opening excerpt of the podcast, still holds a deep fascination for him, and has done so ever since he was a graduate student. Kent Moore is a professor from the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences, and as of July 1st, 2018, is UTM's Vice Principal Research, appointed for a three-year term. Kent has held a number of administrative roles, including Chair, Interim Chair, and Associate Chair of the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at U of T Mississauga. Prior to these positions, he also served as Associate Dean Sciences in the Faculty of Arts and Science from 1997 to 2000. In 2017, he spent half a year as the Visiting Fulbright Chair in Arctic Science in the Department of Atmospheric Science at the University of Washington. His research focuses on investigating climate change using theoretical, computational, and observational techniques to understand the dynamics of the climate system, and he also studies the impact that weather has on human physiology and performance. Kent has managed major academic research grants with numerous international collaborators. I understand that your research examines the dynamics of the climate system and the meteorology of mountainous regions of the Earth and the possible impact on people. So I'm thinking these are things like high altitude effects on people. But I was wondering if you could give me a bit more detail about this work and a few examples of some of your current projects. Sure. So I do kind of two different types of things. So one of these things I do is work in kind of high altitude regions. The other thing I do, I do at uh, sea level. So I'll talk about the high altitude region first. So about a decade ago, I got an email one day from a surgeon at a women's college hospital. And he said uh, he was talking to someone and he talked to a former student of mine. And the student said, oh, you should talk to Kent because he actually does some work on the mountains. So John Semple emailed me out of the blue and he said he was a climber as I am. And he said, I'm interested in kind of understanding the effect that weather has 
on people at altitude. And I'd never thought of that as an actual subject. In fact, it wasn't an actual subject because no one had ever looked at that until we started to. The basic uh, understanding of this is that as you go up in the atmosphere, the pressure drops. And as the pressure drops, the amount of oxygen which is available to you drops as well. And so uh, physiologists who study high altitude processes know this quite well. Uh, but John's kind of wrinkle on this is what happens when a storm comes by? Because what, what a storm is, essentially, it's a time when the pressure drops. So the pressure becomes lower. So at sea level, uh, you know, when we have a low pressure system coming by, there will be a drop in pressure, but it's of no physiological importance because there's so much oxygen at sea level that it, we don't actually feel that. But if you're at the top of a mountain, a very high mountain, then it turns out to be a physiological importance. And so no one had actually tried to quantify this until, until we came along. And so it's actually pretty cool. So the, 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 the rule of thumb is that when you're climbing, uh, going up at, at, to any altitude, you should probably go up only about 500 meters every day. This is when you're about maybe 3,000 meters. If you go up more than that, then your body doesn't have a chance to adjust. And so what we found by looking at storms on Mount Everest is that quite often in, in a bad storm, essentially uh, you could be at the same height on the mountain, but effectively overnight you may be 500 meters higher because the pressure's dropped. And so you may wake up in the morning with acute mountain sickness and wonder why it happened and not really know why. And the reason is, is because you're suddenly actually higher up on the mountain. You've gone through uh, 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 essentially a, an effective increase in height without that acclimatization uh, process. And the effects of mountain sickness? sickness. What is well, that's a, so headache? essentially, generally you get headaches, you feel lethargic, uh, all those sorts of things. And so there's a kind of a more intense disease state called high altitude pulmonary edema where your lungs start to fill with full of water. That's quite dangerous. But just mountain sickness, you just feel kind of lousy. And so if you've ever gone skiing, especially go skiing in places like uh, Colorado, you can go up quite high really, really quickly. And then you can get this kind of mountain sickness. You feel kind of uh, ill and kind of you have a headache. And so what we were able to do is kind of, kind of quantify that in some of these severe storms, you could actually trigger this acute mountain sickness and also sort of at the top of Mount Everest. So if Everest was about maybe two or 300 meters higher, it wouldn't be possible for us to climb it without oxygen. And so if you're really, really high up on a, one of these 8,000 meter peaks, it could potentially put you into a hypoxic state, which is where there's not enough oxygen available for you actually to kind of just run your basic metabolic functions. And so that can be quite severe. And so we were able to kind of introduce actually a whole new field of study because no one had ever looked at the effect of that storms have on people at altitude. And so it's been pretty cool. And have you done the bulk of the work on Mount Everest? We do most of the work on Mount Everest just because there's lots of historical data for storms. Any mountain, when you get above about 6,000 meters, you tend to start getting into problems. Uh, 7,000 meters is called the, the death zone. So above 7,000 meters, you're slowly dying, essentially, just because there's just not enough oxygen for you to kind of survive. So I've been to 6,500 meters, uh, and that's really hard. That's like brutal. In fact, Actually, I took my son, actually my older son, about a decade ago, we went climbing with John and his family, his kids and another colleague of ours. And so we were climbing and, and we would get into camp and it would take us about uh, maybe about two hours to catch our breath. That's how bad it was. And I had a sat phone with me and I was calling my wife and my wife was quite upset because we would be sitting there and just... <gasps> 
and it was just we were just trying to catch our, our breath. So, and that was only about six thousand meters. So I haven't gone high on Mount Everest. I don't really have a an, an interest in doing that. Uh, but it's really really hard without oxygen. And I know that there's some people like they do go up the mountain. They're helping other people who are climbing, and they're sort of native to the region. Is it just that they are more acclimatized to that? So the the people, so the Sherpa who live at high altitude in Nepal, there actually are physiological differences. Their physiology has evolved over time to be able to handle those higher altitudes. I mean, they just live up there. Some people are just by nature of the genetic variation better able to handle high altitudes than others. It turns out not to be a function of fitness, which is kind of interesting. It's just the way you're kind of Put together so i don't although you know like i run i'm quite fit i don't do well really well at altitude it actually causes me some problems and it's just the way i am and i've heard that that there's some people that are very fit and they are always training for things but i've heard they've also had a hard time with it just it just depends and so it's funny so when you go up to I've been up to the base camp Everest a couple of times, and it's just a pack of people going up. It's a bit of a mob scene, but there's always these usually young males that are, oh, yeah, and they zoom ahead, and you see them a few days later. They've gone too high, too fast, and they're coming down because they just can't handle it. So if you take it slow and easy, then you can get to base camp. It just takes pretty much 10 days to do it, and it's just going up a little bit every day and resting and not trying to push yourself because it's when you push yourself that you run into problems. You either get mountain sickness or you're not feeling well, then you just rapidly kind of collapse and you lose your appetite and you have no energy. And then you really have to come down or you're really going to cause yourself lots of problems. I'm guessing, though, that when you started out on this work, though, your background is more in not so much the physiology part, right? Yeah, so the reason I John originally got involved with me is I had about 15 years ago, I was involved in a project looking at an ice core from the top of Mount Logan, which is Canada's highest mountain. And so we had put some weather stations up on Mount Logan and we had done some work kind of trying to reconstruct past climate from the ice core. And so that was actually the work that John found out from a student of mine about. And we got involved in this work. And I say it's been really fascinating. We do other stuff as well now. We've also done some work. There have been a couple of bad avalanches in Mount Everest the last going back 2014 and 2015. And so we've written papers on those avalanches and the impact they have on the people at uh, base camp. So it's really an interesting line of study because uh, not many people do it. And it's a bit of a challenge to publish the work because there's no journals. that are. So John has published work in geophysical journals and I've published work in the New England Journal of Medicine and the British Medical Journal, which are pretty cool journals for a physicist because not, not normally we would publish there. I mean, one of the things I do is interdisciplinary work. And this is like ultimate interdisciplinary because it really is two disciplines that normally don't have any interaction. And so we've been able to inform people who are climbing that they need to be aware of these pressure changes, which has never occurred to them that they were enough to be important. And we've been able to go back and look at, for instance, in 1924, Mallory and Urban made the first attempt to climb Mount Everest, and they both died on the ascent or the descent. We're not really sure yet. And so we were actually able to uncover some weather data that they collected at at that time and actually pretty much demonstrably showed that they probably didn't make it to the top because they were climbing into a really, really bad storm. And that's really fascinating because you can go back and look at events. And Everest is great that way because we have 60, 70 years of records of people climbing it. And so we've been able to reconstruct some of these events in the past. The Interthin Air Storm, 1996, we did a Again, we looked at that storm and were able to kind of understand what went on in that storm. So it's really fascinating work to do. Did you know Tuzo Wilson? You know, I met him a couple of times. Okay, I'm just curious because I know I read some background work about him, and he was also a real dedicated climber. And I, as I understand, his mother was too. So I didn't know his mother was. Yeah, I, I actually met him late 
in his life. He, uh, he came into the physics building downtown one day and I was able to uh, chat with him. And it was a real honor because he is such a uh, giant, you know, in Canadian science yeah. and, and a nice person too. Yeah. So. so now you talked about some of your mountain work. Did you want to mention any of sure. the sea level? That's a bit of a, I enjoy it, but it's not really my bread and butter. What I do mostly, is I'm interested in how the ocean and the atmosphere transfer heat and energy back and forth because it turns out that um, the way the climate system moves heat around and energy around is really what drives all of our weather. And so I'm interested in understanding how that transfer occurs. And so to do that, we actually, it's hard to observe because it usually happens in the wintertime and it usually happens in remote places where people don't normally go. And so what we do is we uh, use uh, research aircraft. And so we fly out over, for instance, I was in March, I was flying over the Greenland Sea. These fluxes, this the technical term is fluxes, but this transfer is most intense right at the surface. And so to observe it, you have to essentially observe the turbulence or the, if you think of a pot of water, those bubbles, that's actually what's happening sort of in the atmosphere. There's all these bubbles coming up and those bubbles of air are the things that are moving heat between the ocean and the atmosphere. And so to sample those things, we went to fly uh, really low, uh, 50 feet above the ocean in stormy conditions, because just like uh, we all know what a wind chill is. So of course, in a, on a, in a winter's day, uh, you can feel quite warm if there's no wind, but as soon as there's a wind, then that is much more efficient at taking heat away from your body. Same thing for the ocean. So when, it, when it's windy, that's when these transfers are, are most intense. And so you have to go out in stormy conditions and fly these aircraft. I don't fly the aircraft myself. I just essentially, as a mission scientist, direct the pilots where to fly the aircraft. And so we do that every maybe once a decade because it's quite expensive to collect all the resources to do that. So we, we've done it. Actually, I've done it maybe four or five times in my career, but the most recent one was just in, in March when we were flying out of northern Iceland and flying out over the Greenland Sea in these stormy conditions, uh, measuring this. really scared? No, it's funny. I don't, I, first of all, I don't mind flying, <laughs> which is important. But also, I think people get into trouble when they don't know what they're getting into. And so we know what we're getting into. We're flying with people who have spent their careers doing that kind of thing. And we have lots of instrumentation on the aircraft that tells us what's actually going on. So I've never felt really fearful for myself. Safety is the first priority. Even if I wanted to fly somewhere, if the plane wasn't in a safe condition, they just wouldn't fly it. So even though I'm paying all the funds for it, the pilot won't do anything which isn't safe. So I, I never feel that way. Uh, I've had students who have been a bit nervous when they fly, but I just find it exhilarating because most scientists study things that are either really, really small or really, really big, and they can never actually experience it. But I'm in this sweet spot where I study the weather. And so when I'm sitting there in that plane and it's really bumpy, I know it's bumpy because there's an energy being transferred between the ocean and the atmosphere. So my body is actually also sort of sensing that. And I find that really incredibly satisfying to be able to actually sample what I study. So I'm in that sweet spot where the length scales and the time scales that I'm studying, I can experience myself. And there's not very many scientists who can do that. You know, when I started out, that wasn't what appealed to me. But over time, I realized that I'm a very unique scientist and I can actually do that. And that's quite satisfying to me now. And I know you mentioned John already, but uh, I understand that you do have some notable international collaborations. Yeah, the climate game is pretty international because I think we all, first of all, the climate is everywhere. So we need to kind of study that. But more importantly, I've been able to kind of uh, collect or sort of... Um, 
find collaborators around the world who are interested in the similar kinds of problems that I'm interested in. And so quite often, you know, for instance, I work quite closely with oceanographers. And oceanography and uh, meteorology are two distinct disciplines. Clearly, they interact because the atmosphere and the ocean talk. But most oceanographers don't really care much about the atmosphere. And most meteorologists don't care, care much about the ocean. And so I've been able to, just by kind of luck, find people who are oceanographers who have very, very similar interests to mine. They're primarily interested in the ocean, but they understand that they need to study the atmosphere as well. And so, so that's been really fortunate for me. So I have a, a really close collaborator I've collaborated with for like 20, I guess about 25 years now, uh, from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in um, Falmouth, Cape Cod, uh, Bob Picard. And so he and I go back many, many years studying that. And uh, I have collaborators in the UK uh, and also in uh, Norway now who I work with quite closely. Um, and it, and again, I think it's important to work, especially my kind of work, because again, I can't, I don't have the resources to fund these big projects all by myself. So by having Americans and English and uh, Norwegians and Canadians, we can usually cobble together all the funds to actually, uh, you know, get an aircraft out there. And usually we have a ship out there as well, and the ship probably costs more than the aircraft does out there. And so by all those collaborations, uh, we've been able to mount these projects uh, throughout the kind of North North Atlantic from the Labrador Sea over to the Greenland Sea. Uh, and I find those really uh, quite satisfying collaborations. What do you feel is the impact of your work? Well, you know, so... Technically speaking, we've been able to sort of improve our understanding of how the ocean and the atmosphere communicate and transfer energy back and forth. And that's important, for instance. um, So what the climate system is made up of is all these processes. Okay, so uh, every process has some complexity to it. And so what climate modelers do is they try to take all these processes and make mathematical models of them. And those mathematical models then are put into the climate model. And the, common, the collection of all those processes are what generates future climate predictions. But unless you understand those processes, then you probably don't represent them very well. And so we've been able to, for instance, show that most climate models, most weather models, uh, overpredict the amount of energy that's being transferred between the ocean and the atmosphere. They have too much heat being transferred. And so by documenting that, by comparing the observations we have with the predictions of the model, we can say, look, it, your understanding of this process isn't, isn't actually correct, uh, and you need to change it in, in, in some way. And so by doing that, we're removing some of the uncertainty in the climate models, and that contributes to uh, improving the forecast down the road. I guess from a public engagement perspective, I do work on Mount Everest and I would do work kind of basically in the climate system. So I think it's really important as scientists that we engage in kind of information or in uh, education of sort of society because there's lots of cross messaging going on. Some people say, you know, the climate system isn't changing, it's always been changing and what we're seeing is just natural and then other people say that no, in fact, we're seeing something which is fundamentally different. And so I think as a scientist, I don't have a vested interest in any policy. I just want to essentially understand what's actually going on. And so I feel, I didn't always feel this way, but I think as I I become older, I've felt it's really quite important that I engage in that debate. So I, you know, I, I do lots of interviews on the TV and media and various, and also give talks to people just so that I can sort of provide a context for people to understand that there is some misinformation out there. And I think that, you know, uh, 99.9% of the scientists who actually work in the field 
are quite concerned at what's happening. And you have to be careful consumer of science. I think that's one thing we don't teach uh, or, or let people know. For instance, like if I have a dentist, I'm happy to have that dentist work on my teeth, but I don't want him to do heart surgery on me. And so when you hear a someone who has an expertise in, uh, let's say, chemistry, talking about the climate system, sure that person is a PhD and maybe a professor, but they don't have any direct expertise. And so unless we as scientists who are engaged in that are willing to step up, then the vacuum is filled by people who may have a vested interest in a particular outcome. So I think that's quite important to do that. And so I think that's the outcome. That's the impact of my work in kind of the larger society. A few years ago, John Semple, my, my colleague, was a, a base camp doctor for one of the expeditions going on to Everest. And uh, I was giving him weather forecasts actually from here in Mississauga. And he had a sat phone. So we had this code. Every day I would text him on his sat phone and tell him what was happening. And uh, one day, so again, it's, it, you know, climbing Everest is a really complicated process. But, you know, one gets to a point where one is acclimatized and one wants to make a push to the summit. And uh, I saw a storm coming, which looked quite severe. And so I texted John and said, you know, there's a bad storm coming. You should probably bring your people down off the mountain. And they were quite reticent because they, this was their one chance to go to the top. And uh, they did come down. And afterwards, they actually were quite happy because it was a really, really bad storm. And uh, so, you know, we potentially saved their lives. And that's actually really quite satisfying uh, because it does have a direct kind of impact on, on people. So, so that work is because I think we have been able to sort of sensitize uh, the climbing community and, and that there are, you know, you need to worry about some of these storms. It's not just that the wind gets, you know, there's clearly wind effects and wind chill, but it actually can cause physiological harm to people. And so that's actually really, really satisfying as well. And I know that you did touch on this already, the how you got into the work with John uh, and the Mount Everest work, but how did you get into this field to begin with? It's a really good question. So I did an undergraduate degree in at, at the University of Guelph in theoretical physics, which was mathematics and physics. And when I kind of got farther into my undergraduate career, although physics kind of was exciting, you know, most physicists do what's called modern physics you know, quantum mechanics or, you know, condensed matter physics or high energy physics, all these things that have been evolved during the 20th century. And that didn't really appeal to me at all. It just didn't, I mean, it was fun as a kind of a theoretical exercise, but it didn't really kind of just grab at me. And I was going to go into applied math because that was something which actually I found quite interesting. And then one day I was reading like a Scientific American or something, I'm not really sure. And I heard about this laboratory uh, at uh, Princeton University that did actually climate modeling. They were the first people to do climate modeling. This was back in the late 70s. And that sounded really cool to me because they could do things like they had a model of the climate system. They could take the mountains off the earth and see what happens to the climate. And that sounded really, really cool, almost like a gut-wrenchingly cool thing. And so I applied to the program and I got accepted and I never actually did any of that stuff. I never took mountains out of a climate model, but that's how I got involved in this in this area. So it was just serendipity. When I talk to students, they say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about what I should do. And I think most things are really interesting. And as long as you kind of think that it's actually has some 
interest to you and something you want to do like you know 24 7 then you should probably go to it and not really worry about where you end up because you'll probably end up somewhere uh, and not kind of fuss about whether you should do on door one or door two and i was lucky to find that but i'm sure had i gone into applied mathematics i would have found something else that interested me but it just really fascinated me and uh, and so that's sort of how i ended up in this field because it, the thing is is that in actually the university of toronto is the only university that in canada that actually has people like myself who are geophysicists in a physics department. No other university has that. So most meteorologists or oceanographers are in usually a separate department. And that means that physics students don't get exposed to that. So most physics students, like like I was an undergraduate, had no idea there was a huge area of physics called geophysics. And so that's one thing which is unique about University of Toronto, both here in Mississauga and on St. George, is that we have people in a physics department who actually do geophysics. And so our students are actually exposed to that, uh, not just finding it by chance like I did. And frankly, the, the training that I think is best actually for the discipline that I'm in is actually just a pure physics undergraduate degree, because our work is very mathematical, uh, you know, kind of very physical. And so we can teach a physics student kind of the meteorology or the fluid dynamics quite easily because they have a really good foundation but if they come from some other discipline it's actually more of a challenge so i personally prefer physics undergraduate students as graduate students because they just have that strong skill base that i can build on what a a great story because i just i can't imagine it is total serendipity and as you say just coming across this article and there's a few times where i've heard other faculty members mention that but um I think that what you've also mentioned is just that something that's going to fascinate you because you know you're going to be spending all this time really picking it apart or uh, looking at it for years and years over your academic career that it's got to hold you. It really does. Like, you know, as a graduate student, of course, I mean, I I work work a lot too because I because it's frankly the best job in the world. I mean, being an academic, it really is the best job in the world. When I was finishing up my PhD, I didn't know if I wanted to go into academics or not. So I was a recruited by the Department of National Defense here in Canada to work because they have a research arm. So one of the persons there told me, he says, we're like a university. You can come here and you can sit at one desk for your whole career. Whereas almost every other profession, think about it, right? You become a manager and you start managing people and you kind of get away from what you really loved. And so that's what a university professor is. You can sit at one desk, literally your whole career, work on whatever you're interested in and and not have to ever do anything else if you don't want to. And I think that's just the best job because you can interact with really bright students and bright colleagues and you can work on problems which you define. And, and uh, But if it's not something that you like, I can't imagine doing something that doesn't just grab me. Like I, when I get up in the morning, I just want to get to work and do my science. Like even today, I'm just so excited by what I do and the things that are still to be found. And so that's really what makes my job fascinating. And so it doesn't have to be that. I mean, everyone has some passion. And so if you can find, you know, that passion, then it's not really work, right? Someone said that if you, if you like what you do, it's not really work. And so that's really, I feel honestly really privileged to be in this position because it does allow me to really do what I'm passionate about. And that's so great because you can see the enthusiasm, even if you've been studying it for as long as you've been studying it, you you can see it coming through. Every day is something new, you know, like it just like every day you just something happens or you uh, do something and we're getting more and more data. I mean, one of the problems with the ocean is the ocean is really poorly sampled. Like it's really hard to sample the ocean, which for reasons that are kind of cool is that uh, we use electromagnetic radiation, right? We can send a balloon up and it can radio stuff back to us in the ocean. 
the ocean is is opaque to electromagnetic radiation so you can't send a probe out and have it radio stuff back because the radio waves will be absorbed by the water so they have to go and actually measure things kind of locally so they have to go out and, and actually collect stuff and so over the years there's been more and more uh, em- emphasis on actually collecting field data so just my friend just the other day emailed oh we got some really cool results from these moorings that we that we put into the north atlantic a couple of years ago there's a meteorological component so you know we have to cut our work on that and that's really really cool because we can explain you know stuff that that's going on and it's just it's just so fascinating coming up research on the horizon kent talks about his ambitions in his newly appointed role of the vice principal research at utm and what he envisions for the campus in the years to come I think my job is great because I get to talk to people who are so passionate about their work all the time. But this sort of leads to my next and last uh, question is, as the new vice principal of research, you are overseeing our research environment here at UTM. So I just wanted to ask you, what are some of the the things that you hope to accomplish maybe or some of your aims over the next uh, little while? So I'm really passionate about UTM. I think it's a really unique institution and a unique division within the University of Toronto. And I think what makes us unique, well, there are many things, but the one I think is that just the fact that there's a potential for collaboration here, which doesn't exist on, uh, on the other campuses of the University of Toronto. And so one thing that I really want to do is try to sort of build these links between uh, people in different departments who may not work together now because there's no formal mechanism for them to work together and and allow them to kind of uh, leverage their expertise and do the kind of work that I do with John Semple or or with Bob Picard and sort of bridge disciplines and and actually have that research done here Uh, and I think that's really really quite exciting and it's something that we can do here at uh, UTM and so I think I also want to just get the word out that this really is a fascinating and a really special uh, place and so just again promoting um, the work that's done by other colleagues here I think is really important so I think I want to kind of help get that word out and also I think because I've been involved in businesses and you know, boards of directors of companies and things throughout my career so I think I have a different perspective than others may have and I think we all bring our perspectives to the table and so I think I have a perspective which is maybe unique amongst academics and so I'm hoping that I can apply that to again just to further the uh, mission of this division which is to you know showcase the, the the excellence at UTM. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would like to thank my guest Kent Moore for speaking about his work and projects in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at UTM and his vision for the Office of the Vice Principal of Research and as my new boss in this portfolio. Thank you to the Office of the Vice Principal of Research for their support. Please feel free to get in touch with me. My contact information is on our SoundCloud page. If you have feedback or if there's someone from UTM that you'd like to see featured on View to the U, please get in touch with me. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you.